Habits and Health, Episode 94. Welcome to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Wingyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health, and my guest today, Paula Allen, who is a global leader, research, and total well being, and senior vice president at LifeWorks. She's a creator of the LifeWorks Mental Health Index and manages the research agenda for LifeWorks. We talk a lot about mental health and about her work doing this and her focus on industry leading research. And she also leads LifeWorks Thought Leadership and is a co chair of the organization's product and innovation strategy. So we get into some of that on this week's episode with Paula Allen. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share it with someone who would get some real value from some of the content discussed. Habits and Health, my guest today, Paula Allen. How are you, Paula? Yeah, doing very well. Happy to be here. And so we're in Toronto today. We are. I am. (laughs) And how is Toronto today? It's lovely. Toronto is a beautiful city if you haven't had an opportunity to visit. It's particularly beautiful in summer. So now at the end of October, we're very grateful that we have a bright sunny day. So if anyone's listening who's never been to Toronto, give me one good reason why they should visit. Oh, the food. Absolutely. (laughs) A wide variety of high quality food. Torontonians do not stand for anything less than that. Okay. I've heard many good things about Toronto, but I've never heard about the food before. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll have to get down there one day. Absolutely. Paula, I know that you're very involved with mental health and you've got a company called LifeWorks. Tell us more about what it is that you do and what LifeWorks does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, LifeWorks helps organizations help their people be at their best. That's probably a good way to to capsulize. Uh, We provide employee assistance services, mental health services, financial well-being services, the things that really impact people's quality of life, as well as their work productivity. We're there to help individuals get better, problem solve. And we also help organizations with training and support to help them get better as an organization. And my role is in research. So I have data scientists, researchers, experts in a number of different areas. And what we help the organization and our clients do is understand what makes a difference. So that's my role. So how did LifeWorks first come to be? What was the, what happened before? What, why did they decide to start going down this road? And how long ago was that? Oh, that was several years ago. Uh, the company has been in business for 50 years. We're in 180 different countries. And our core service started with employee assistance. And at that point, there really wasn't anything available to help people who are struggling for with a number of different issues. There's an alcohol problem. There's a depression or anxiety. There's some sort of crisis that's really dealing with your mental health. Hmm. So we and a few other organizations set up to help solve that problem. So right now we still have, and what we started at that point was 24-7, 365 day a year access, just a telephone call away, access to a counselor, ongoing support for mental well-being, as well as many practical issues, even childcare, elder care, a number of different things. And it's fully supported by the employer. They pay for our services, but everything that happens between an employee and us 
is completely and absolutely confidential. And that's why it's been able to be a flourishing business for 50 years. Obviously, I don't know the situation in Canada and I'm self-employed, so I don't really know the situation in companies in England. My feeling, what it seems to be in the last five years, it's been a huge change in focus and awareness around mental health in the UK. It didn't seem to be that way 10, 15, 20 years ago. Is it similar in Canada and other countries? Absolutely. It's similar all over the world. Even in Asia, where there really hadn't been a lot of focus on employee mental health and well-being, we're seeing more growth in that area than anywhere else. And we started 50 years ago, and certainly the attitude towards mental health, the services that we offer, the whole focus on mental health in the workplace has changed since then. Like we've added additional services, we've expanded, we've grown in a number of different ways in terms of our offering. But the last five years, and I would hazard to say even the last three, have been phenomenal in terms of the, I would say, the top-level focus, the CEO focus, the CFO focus on mental health in and, and, and the workplace. Like, that has been phenomenal. So, I mean, before there was a huge stigma around mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the stigma is still there or is it more or less gone? What what, what are your findings on that? Very unfortunately, it is still there. So very unfortunately, it is still a problem that we need to tackle, but it's gotten better. It has gotten a lot better. So I think the more that we know about mental health and mental disorder, what causes it, what people go through when they experience it, knowledge is really the antidote to stigma. When people don't understand something, they're afraid of it. When people don't have answers, they fill in answers themselves that are not always helpful. So I think as we get to the point of having more knowledge just in in general, as a society, stigma is decreasing, but it's still there. There's no two ways about it. From a business point of view, though, there's been this awakening of knowledge that everybody, every single human being, without exception, has some level of vulnerability in terms of their mental health. Absolutely. Just like every single human being has some level of vulnerability in terms of their physical health. And we need to make sure that people are supported if they have any kind of difficulty, but we also need to make sure that people are supported in being the best that they can be supporting their mental well-being. And the reason I believe that this has become much more of a focus for business is when you look at what's important to business, it's innovation, it's creativity, it's collaboration, it is It's customer service. It's all of those things that are all better when our mental well-being is better. Mm -hmm. And we also know that given the fact that we do have more knowledge, that we do have more communication, that everyone, including your top performers, could have a mental health issue at some point in their lives. And the pandemic has made people realize their own vulnerability. So it it feels a little bit less called comfortable feeling judgmental about having that kind of support is important. So mental well-being is important and support when you have any kind of difficulty is also important. We'll we'll come on to the the pandemic in a minute because obviously that's heightened things considerably. But you talked about knowledge. And so one thing that's going through my mind as you were saying that is there. The people maybe who are visually or obviously suffering more from mental health, so they may seek help or maybe they're offered help. But isn't it the case also that there's 
everyone in the office space needs to have more knowledge about it so that they're more understanding of the people who maybe have worse issues around mental health? Oh, without question. There's there's different types of stigma. There's self-stigma where you feel badly about yourself and you get this narrative around who you are if you're having some difficulty that actually makes things worse. But we know that social stigma, workplace stigma, that makes a difference as well. And when people feel that stigma, interestingly enough, they're less likely to take care of themselves. Even if you yourself are enlightened, if you feel that other people are going to judge you, you're less likely to seek help because you're worried that people will find out. So it's damaging. It's mm. not just it's not, it's not just an unkind thing. You actually mm. are damaging the other person's mental health by making it less likely they'll get help and putting another level of burden and anxiety on them. So when people understand there's so many different reasons why people have a mental health issue, we still hear things, unfortunately, about you've got a good job, you're gorgeous, you have lovely family. You should just, like, how could you possibly be feeling anxious? How could you possibly be feeling depressed? Well, they're just not understanding the functioning of the brain. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about mental health, we are thinking about a health issue. And just yeah. like there are certain things that you can do to reduce your risk, but there's certain things that are just the way they are and you just have to deal with them the way they are. Just like cancer, just like heart disease, just like well, every other health issue, you can't blame the person or say you've got a good life, so you shouldn't be feeling that way. Hmm. Last year, about 18 months ago, I did a course with an organization in England called Mental Health First Aid. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am actually. And I get the impression that you're doing a similar thing to them. I found the course really fascinating. I, I learned all sorts of things that I had no awareness of. Is what you're doing similar to, to that? Yes. One of the services that we offer and one of the services that organizations are really, you know, availing themselves more of is mental health in the workplace training. And we offer a version for employees because everybody has a responsibility. You need to know about what's available for yourselves. You as a coworker have a role, but also we have a special training for managers. We found that over the past two years, four and five managers have dealt with a mental health issue of an employee and the majority didn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Well, that puts pressure on the manager and anxiety because managers want to be helpful and it, it also puts us at risk because sometimes people do things that are not helpful. They could ignore a problem and isolate the person. They could step in and try to be a counselor when they don't really have any training in being a counselor. And, and really, we help them with the words and help them with what's most important, which is just being human, being empathetic and listening without judgment without trying to fix and help that person with the next step. When you have that kind of social support, people think sometimes it's not enough, I need to do more, but that wraps around the world twice in terms of the important next step. Think about it, Tony, in terms of with mental health, sometimes you'll see somebody suffering and you'll make all sorts of decisions and go wrap yourself up in a little knot trying to figure out whether you should help. If you saw somebody who was bleeding on the side of the road, who had fallen off a ladder, who was, it was obviously buckled over in pain, you'd rush to them to help them. You're not a doctor and you're not pretending to be, but you're going to be there for them as a person and be as helpful as you can. We want the same thing for mental health. So are you working just with large corporations or medium, small as well? How does that work? 
Oh, a wonderful question, because a lot of people assume that we would do a work only with large corporations with deep pockets, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we work with or organizations of all sizes, small organizations, just with a handful of people, large organizations that are multinational. The core service, which is employee assistance program, is very cost effective. So I think a lot of organizations feel that maybe they can't afford it or whatever. It's a, it's much, much cheaper than many other of the benefits that, that, that you would have for your employees. And I would hazard to say it's one of the most meaningful things that you can do as an employer to support the people's mental health and well-being. We literally save lives every day because people call us feeling the effects of crisis. And the last thing that we want to do is not have that support and see them pass by suicide. And they're, they're going to get benefits in so many ways because they're going to get better employee experiences. I, I imagine it's going to help the bottom line. I, mean, I can just imagine there's all sorts of different areas of the business that will benefit from having this kind of help. Without question, and again, it, or, or senior leaders are recognizing that. I think what, one of the things the pandemic did is it, it helped clarify, like crisis helps clarify priorities. And what we saw is even intuitively, even without kind of all the reams of research, which I can give you if you want, but even with all the re without all the reams of research, CEOs recognize one thing. One is this is pretty disruptive and pretty bad, and my people are vulnerable. I feel vulnerable. This is a stressful situation, and there is no one who is immune to the impacts of it. The other is my business is in trouble if my people aren't functioning well. Mm. And this is the main factor that could interfere with them functioning well. So with those two clear points of fact, the focus on supporting people's mental health in the workplace became more of a priority than it was before. Chris, some of the things you were talking about before when people feel maybe if it's not being addressed, if there's not an awareness within the company of this, and then they keep it to themselves. And then you may well get situations, I would imagine, where a really good employee leaves because they just don't want to talk about it. Whereas now with their help, they're not going to lose good employees who are really beneficial to the company. Without question. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, when you reach out for any kind of help for any kind of health issue, whether it's diabetes, heart, or mental health, it's, it is confidential. Your personal health information is confidential. So you can feel assured about that. It's your choice whether you want to speak about it or not. And it needs to be your choice. Mm -hmm. You sh shouldn't feel pressure in any way. You shouldn't feel that if you speak about your health issue that you're going to be somehow treated differently and more, more, more negatively. Mm -hmm. And there really is that need for those two things. The confidentiality will always be there, but your ability to feel that you do not need to hide also needs to be there because if it's not, even if everything is kept confidential, you're still going to feel a burden. When organizations speak openly about mental health, there's there's an, a, a, a kind of an encouragement for people to feel comfortable regardless of what's going on in terms of their health, to know that they're going to be supported, to know that there are resources that, that help them, and to know that they won't be unduly and quite frankly, illegally penalized for having a mental health issue. That makes a difference. Mm -hmm. You talked about that you're involved in research. So I imagine, don't want to imagine, 
And <laughs> in the last couple of years, we've all just gone on. I try to think how things have changed with, with regarding mental health. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> they have changed. And, and it's got wonderful in terms of the direction of that change. We have a mental health index and we publish it on a monthly basis. We were collecting baseline information between 2017 and 2019. So before the pandemic, like we're finding our index and collecting a baseline. So we have a really good indication of the before time. And we started publishing more frequently in, in, in April of 2020. And you would not believe the decline that we saw. Like we knew that there would be because with all the change and uncertainty and increased isolation, these are all things the mind doesn't like. So we knew there's no way that we would avoid having a mental health impact. We were just shocked how significant it was. And probably the reason is because it was so widespread. We've never really had this kind of global phenomenon of this nature before. We have seen that decline. Our mental health index tracks on a regular basis. And there has been some modest improvement, but we're still nowhere near where we were in 2019 and before. And this data you're collecting globally? They're collecting it in globally. We have a panel of 15,000 employees in North America, Europe, UK, Australia, and Singapore as well. And we'll be expanding into more countries in Asia. And the phenomenon of the decline was quite consistent. At the very beginning of the pandemic, countries that were closer to the epicenter declined more, but everybody's tracking fairly similarly right now. So there are other things that impact mental health. So we do see some variations by country, but overall the decline it was, it was a global decline. So three big things happen. One is anybody who had extraordinary stress or vulnerability or any kind of issue, their issue became worse. So people who were at moderate risk became high risk. People who were in high risk in terms of their mental health went into full-on crisis. So we had that kind of shifting. Uh, we also saw an increase in unhealthy coping behaviors. So we saw a lot of increase in drinking, for example, at the very beginning of the pandemic. It leveled off a bit, but it's still fourfold what it was before in terms of high-risk drinking. People got into that pattern, and that pattern is, has remained. And the third thing that we saw is that even those people who weren't in either of those two categories, the sensitivity to stress for the overall population was heightened. And again, think about what happened over the last two years. We were very hyper-vigilant. We had to be. Changes in, in public health directives as we knew more information as, and as risk increased and decreased, we were more isolated, which actually makes us much more vulnerable. Uh, there were all sorts of practical reasons why we were that kind of fight or flight response in our brain was over-engaged. Mm. And the part of our brain that has emotional regulation and empathy. It's fighting for control. It was actually disengaged a bit. So we've seen this sensitivity to stress that's showing itself in a little bit more, a little bit more volatility. People are more, more likely to be in conflict, quicker to anger, more likely to be cynical. And again, this is a known phenomenon when people are under long-term stress and we're seeing it a fair bit in our population right now. So, I mean, many countries had very different attitudes towards yeah, the regulations they imposed during the whole pandemic. You got 
China on the one hand and maybe Sweden was the opposite. Was that reflected in the data that you collected? There are definitely some country differences, but overall, everyone was, was impacted. There was no country where there really wasn't that decline. So I, I, I do think that this is definitely a global phenomenon because even if you didn't have a whole bunch of restrictions in your location, you had risk. Hmm. People, even in the, if they didn't have restrictions, they had people dying. Well, there were also a lot of things that ended up polarizing people's attitudes. So regardless of what your government did, there were people who were feeling very positive about what the government was doing, other people feeling very negative, others. That kind of polarization added some attention into every single country as well. Can you give examples of companies that have really implemented this, well, really taken this on board and gone out of their way to... to implement this into their culture as much as possible and what results that? Yeah, we studied this quite closely. So throughout the pandemic, there were certain things that, that organizations did that really made a difference. And when I say made a difference, we actually saw that the mental health of their people did not decline to the extent of the general population. So very significant separation between employees who are in, within and employers who it really focused appropriately on mental health and those who didn't. And one thing was communicating about mental health a lot, so speaking about it, and that helps people get knowledge. It also helps people feel less stigma. So when the topic is in shadows, then stigma grows. The other is promoting services. So if they have an EAP, if they have other services that support mental health, speaking about that in a very practical way to allow people to get support without sort of feeling that they have to wait until things are really terrible and only get crisis support, so get support proactively. The third thing is training managers. So helping managers know how to support their people, you know, how to make sure that people don't feel isolated. And when they feel that sense that something is not right, how to step in appropriately. So how to have that conversation that makes somebody feel that connection with you, but without necessarily taking on a role that you that you aren't equipped to take on. So being helpful within the role of the managers. So those were the three most powerful things that employers did. So that communication to show your culture, that promoting services so people can take that action, and training your managers, which wraps around the world twice in terms of people's experience. Maybe when you first start having communication with a company, you're going, to, you're going to help them. Have you seen situations where they've they've maybe thought they were trying to help, but they've actually made things far worse by just because of the lack of knowledge? Is there anything along those lines that you've come across? Yeah, but it's, it's you know what? It's rare, right? Usually when people want to help, they we intuitively are a little bit smarter than we give ourselves credit for as people and just saying that you want to help and saying that you care very 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 valuable and many people also did reach out to professionals to help hone in on what they should do but i do think one of the things that is less helpful but not obviously so is when we're organizations in order to address stigma they force people to speak about their mental health issues publicly. So it's you don't want to take away control from people, right? You want to set up an environment where people feel comfortable speaking 
but going around a room and saying, talk about your deepest fears and challenges and your mental health, it just, it goes opposite to what you want to do, which is show respect. I think people need to sort of balance the fact that we do want an environment where people feel they can be open, but forcing people to do something that they are not comfortable doing actually can have the opposite effect. Hmm. So how did you first get into this? What was your story? What made you interested in this line of work? Yeah, very interesting because obviously when you're young, you have all sorts of things. Being a graphic designer was one for me and a whole bunch of other things. But very early on in university, I saw something that really changed the way I think. And it was an image of a brain. And that brain, I saw that brain change structurally over time. And the owner of that brain was going through unrelenting stress. So just the fact that experience of stress changed that individual's brain physically. And that blew me away. I just, I started to really be interested in the functioning of the brain. I started to be really interested in mental health issues. I started to think about mental health issues in a completely different way. When that brain-body, that mind-body connection is so strong and so powerful, I really wanted to understand it. I got a degree in psychology, focused in neuropsychology, learning challenges, as well as brain injury, worked with children a fair bit, and started to work with adults who were off work on on, on health leave, like disability leave. And again, when you work at the end of the parade and you actually see impacts of things gone wrong, I developed a very strong need to figure out how to prevent that. So how to go up the food chain a little bit and prevent some of the life-altering impacts that I saw from actually happening. Started to work in the area of wellness and well-being and really took a focus that's a little bit different from others, which is a scientific focus. And uh, the research role that I have right now is aligned. How do you see things changing in the next few years? Because there is a lot more awareness around all of this now. Do you, I'm just wondering what you think might change in the next few years. I think we have to be careful and make sure that we keep up. I think things will get better. But I actually think that we've seen a, a strong pattern of mental health issues becoming more complex. And that's what I mean by keeping up. We could get better and that better might have helped us 10 years ago. But it bars raising. And there's a number of things that are driving that complexity. We are, we have been for quite some time becoming more and more isolated as a society. That happened before the pandemic just made it worse and it's not back to the way we are, we were. So that makes us more sensitive to stress. Like when we feel a part of something, when we have social support, when we feel a part of collective, that really helps mitigate the impact of stress. We're also seeing more health risks in the younger population. There's many reasons for that, but one of the things that we know is that children are going through puberty a lot earlier, and that kind of fires up certain things in your brain, not necessarily sexual, but social as well. Hmm. If the other part of your brain isn't, isn't equipped to help manage all of this new attention, then you start to feel very overwhelmed. You start to feel more anxious. And, you know, that's another, that's one of the factors that's increasing the complexity of mental health issues. At a younger age, people are feeling more anxious, more overwhelmed, and we're seeing more health risks. 
So the complexity is increasing, but at the same time, employers are doing more about it. Governments are doing more about it. We just really make, have to make sure that we follow the trend of education, support, to the younger generation, I'm talking about children in school and ramping that up and continually, uh, continuously investing in mental health resources and mentally healthy cultures and workplaces. What are your thoughts on some of the social media companies and how much they do or maybe don't do to help this situation? I think the I think there's a lot of awareness in social media organizations right now about how much power that platform has. And when you have power, you know, you really need to take on a sense of responsibility. <laughs> so I, I do see that as we move forward, there'll be a lot more investment in professional psychologists and in shaping and, and crafting the experience and the, what, what the potential is in that experience a lot more. As we move into the metaverse, for example, I think that there'll be a lot of accountability on, on making sure that platform doesn't exacerbate existing problems and can be used to be more helpful. But I don't think that they can do everything. I think at the end of the day, we need more awareness, you know, how each individual interacts with social media and how our contribution to our collective mental health is our responsibility. So I, I do think people be more guarded in terms of how they interact. And I do think that this starts with children very young for them to understand how to get the benefit of it without actually having the negative aspects of it. So a multi-pronged strategy, I think, is going to be helpful move forward. A lot of the focus on this show is about habits. So what? What habits do you think would help people with just general mental health in general? One of the most basic ones is really realizing that you need a bit of a balanced diet for your brain. And by that, we're built to have a variety of experiences every day. And there's certain experiences that are core. People need to have a sense of accomplishment, just whether it's at work or outside of work or whatever, that sense that you're, you've done something. People need to have fun and laughter. You think about the endorphins that come just by laughing or, or smiling even at someone. There needs to be social contact. We're social beings. And even though, you know, it's possible to live without ever having any real contact in real life contact with another human being, it's not healthy. <laughs> it's certainly something that we need to be intentional about because our lives have made it easier to be more, more isolated. And just even a variety of scenery, going out and seeing the outside world, making changes in your route back and forth to supermarket or grocery store or work just having that different kind of experiences in your brain is important a lot of people have really suffered in the pandemic because all we did was work and nothing and that that really drains you so i think that's important of all those experiences though contact with people is the most important it's interesting you say that i was just listening to i think it was a podcast in the last couple of days and they were talking about in japan in the last few years and Japanese teenagers, there's a huge number of them are just never going out. They're never even stepping outside their bedroom, never mind about the yes. house. Yes, I know that phenomenon as well. I think it's absolutely tragic. It's one of these things that 
And there's many reasons for it, but, but the thing that kind of relates to the broader population is just because it's possible to do something doesn't mean that it's good. And even if it is good, you still have to balance the consequences. So let's just even think about when we have cars now and we have machines and all that's good. I don't want to get rid of the cars. I don't want to get rid of the machines. They're efficient. They're, they provide us with more opportunity. But they've also prevented us from doing what we need, which is have physical activity. So we have to be intentional about having that physical activity or else our health decline. Our technology situation right now has made it possible to work and play and to do everything without leaving a particular room. And I don't want to get rid of that technology. I would like to have that option. But I need to be intentional about reaching out to other people. And it's so easy for me to just say that but if you go down a path where your behavior is just trending in a certain way, you might not need to have a disorder or anything of that sort, but you're structuring your life in a way that makes your life very small. It becomes harder and harder to counter that. It becomes harder and people actually become anxious about doing something differently, about leaving their home because it is different. So do you have any knowledge as to why this is happening in Japan and, and how is, is it a situation where the teenage youth in Japan are got much higher rates of mental health issues than other countries? I don't know if it's higher rates. There's, cer there's certainly in, in many countries, there's social pressures are different and kind of social pressure somebody experiences can impact their mental well-being as well. So if you have a society where there's a fair bit, and all of it, all, every society has it, but if you have a, a society where there's a fair bit of social judgment, then people start to respond to that and start to retract from that. The other thing is that sometimes unhealthy behaviors are just contagious. Mm -hmm. So your friend is not leaving their room. Yeah. It opens up the possibility for you to make that and go down that path as well. I guess that seems normal then to your friends doing this. Even if it doesn't feel quote unquote normal, it provides you, you see a vision of an option, yeah. right? And it does make it feel less, less foreign to you. The fact that there's clusters of certain types of behaviors is really well explained by that kind of social phenomenon. Do you have any knowledge as to how they're trying to tackle this how, or how could they tackle that in Japan? It's many things. Some of the people who are exhibiting this behavior, they do have mental health challenges and you have to deal with it, what the cause is. Others, you know, they might not even have the behavior for very long. The fact of the behavior makes it more likely that they'll have that challenge. So progressive exposure outside of the, the four walls is, is important, um, but also addressing the root causes. I do think, though, at a societal level, we need to make sure that the value of interacting with other people doesn't get lost. When you see, when you're under stress and you're with others who are supportive and you feel a sense of belonging, your problem doesn't necessarily go away, but your experience of that problem is less stressful. You're meant to be in tribes and communities and families and have friends. And we need that sense of belonging. And I do think that we're sometimes undervaluing it. Okay, we're changing the subject now, Paula. Uh, one of the questions <laughs> I, I always ask every guest, is there a book that has moved you? And I think, I believe you've got a couple. I have a few, but there's one by Jim Collins, Good to Great. It's a very famous book. It's a business book. 
And there's many things about it that are interesting, but the one thing that stands out is that there is a paradox that's explained called the Stockdale paradox. And I think I, uh, I think it shaped my life probably more than I realized until you asked the question. The Stockdale paradox is really being realistic about the current state and never losing hope at the same time. So sometimes people think that being optimistic is the way to be resilient. And optimism is great as long as you are realistic about the current state. If you just, if you fluff things off and say everything's going to be better by Christmas or you can be very disappointed, you can be very crushed, right? Because if that doesn't happen, if you don't put in place the things to make it happen, then your optimism is empty. But on the other hand, if you look at your current state, and all you're doing is thinking about how negative it is, and you don't have that sense of hope, and you don't have that sense of what can I do to make things better, mm. then you never move forward. So it's that healthy balance between realism, being very realistic, and helping that inform realistically your optimism as well. There was, there's an author called Oliver Berkman. I don't know, have you ever heard of him? I have not, no. He wrote a book on that and it's a fascinating book and I'm trying to remember the title and it's not coming to me, but he wrote a book exactly what you're talking about. It, something about negative, it's not always good to have a positive attitude. That's not the title of the book, but it's something around, and he, he talks about the Stockdale paradox and Viktor Frankl in the, in Auschwitz talking about a similar thing and it's a fascinating book. Actually, that's another one of my, my, my favorite books, Viktor Frankl, The, the Importance of Purpose. I, and again, people can go through so much if they have purpose. And purpose doesn't have to be a life-changing purpose. It could be you have to be there for your child. It could be a small P purpose that you really just want to make this one thing better. You want to make sure that you make one person smile every day. That kind of gives you a reason, I think, is really helpful. So if, if people want to find out more about you, but, and also about LifeWorks, and maybe they need to reach out, they've got, they've realized that and their company maybe does need some help around this sort of area, where, what are the best places for them to go? We have a website, lifeworks.com, L-I-F-E-W-O-R-K-S.com. And through that, you'll see the range of sorts that we have available and be able to, to contact contact us. On that website, you'll also see the mental health index that I'd mentioned. So all that research is publicly available. We want to make sure that everyone has as broad knowledge as possible. There's also a tool on that website called Workplace Strategy Index for Mental Health, where you can actually self-assess what you're doing as an organization and have recommendations about what you might do better benchmark against other organizations, but also benchmark against best practice. So that as well as all of our services are available on the website. And again, my name is Paula Allen. I work for LifeWorks and I'm happy to have you follow me on LinkedIn as well. And so is that organizations from any country can get in touch? Absolutely. Without question. We have, like I said, we have services in 180 different countries. So it's very likely that you're in a place where we are Finally, to finish, Paula, have you got a quotation that resonates with you? Yeah, I do, actually. And this one is a bit of a quotation, but it's a, a philosophy of life as well as three things. Be accountable for yourself. Never intentionally ever hurt anyone else. And try to make things better. Whatever you're doing, just try to make it a little bit better than it was before. And those things came from 
my wonderful father. So you might not see the written anywhere in a book, but it's certainly been an important three points that shaped my life. Well, Paula, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you for, for educating us all uh, a bit more about mental health. We, we all need to know a lot more about it. So yeah, thank you for that. Oh, and thank you for having me on and, and speaking about the topic. I think it's important and happy to join anytime. Thank you. Next week is episode 95 with Dr. Joe Matha, who's a board certified family practice physician and the medical director of the Ruskio Institute for Functional Medicine. We talk about quite a few different topics around arthritis, the gut, microbiome, functional medicine, and he has a, a real focus on GI health and environmental toxicity. So that's next week's episode 95 with Dr. Joe Matha, MD. If you've enjoyed this week's show with Paula Allen, please do share the episode with anyone who would get some value from it and I hope you have a fabulous week. Thanks for tuning into the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.